0: Hello, listeners. I'm Carl Anker, and welcome to Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. As ever, I'm joined by The Athletics Manchester United writer Laurie Whitwell. Hi, Laurie. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? I'm doing right, thanks. How are you getting on?
1: I'm alright, yeah, decent. It was nice weather over the weekend, wasn't it? So, obviously, not uh, going outside and mixing uh, at all, but um, we've got a little balcony that we can enjoy the sun. So, obviously, got sunburned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, with us, as always, is also the Unite We Stand editor and contributing writer to The Athletic, Mr Andy Mitten. Hello Andy, how are you doing? Hi Carl, I'm okay, thank you mate. How have your stamp buying escapades progressed since last week?
2: If I have to copy and paste another address for an order to a fanzine, I'm just going to call it a day. You no, know, We had loads and loads of orders, but my fingers are about to fall off. I spent the whole Easter weekend copying and pasting orders, which I can't complain about because that's all we wanted. But uh, it's not 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 a job that I normally do, and uh, it was nice to see the geographic spread of Manchester United fans. It really was from Peterhead in the north uh, of Scotland to the Isles of Scilly, where the address was something like the old post house, Isle of Scilly, and then Loden Island, Belfast. And I'm I'm just interested in geography, so to see like people in Derry, London, who live in different communities but only live 200 meters apart, and I wonder whether their lives ever interchange but they have Manchester United in common and stuff like that interests me. Anyway, we're not not here to talk about that.
0: (laughs) No, we are here to talk about our continuing retro-reload. This is week four of our look back at the 1998-99 season, the treble season. Uh, Each episode we've been doing so far is looking back at where Manchester United were at this time, roughly back in 1999. And will you look at the date on this day, April 14th, 1999, Manchester United played Arsenal in perhaps one of the greatest FA Cup games of all time. It's the semi final replay.
3: So here we go the favourites for the FA Cup against the holders, the Premiership leaders against the defending champions and closest challengers. Both these clubs are washed with honours and chasing each
0: other for more silverware. Gentlemen, you were both there, weren't you?
1: Mm, yeah, I was there, obviously, a young kid. Um, And uh, my dad took me. um, I'm a cousin as well, actually, I think. Um, But, yeah, absolutely crazy game. And obviously, it was the last one, wasn't it? The last FA Cup replay. Um, uh, But I've got... and Obviously,
2: you were there as well, weren't you, Andy? I mean, what were your memories of it? I was living in London for the treble year. So, even though we were running coaches from Manchester, I was travelling to games with with the Cockney Reds for that year. And I remember um, the lad I usually travelled with, he brought his mate along and he wasn't a United or Arsenal fan he just loved going to big sporting events. And I think he paid quite a lot for a ticket and he was just like a working class London lad. And it just wasn't normal. So you you remember things which are not normal. And maybe he didn't need to pay a lot for the ticket because there were 10,000 empty seats. The game was only three days after the first match and tickets were really easy to get. Although my best mate missed that game because not everybody can go at short notice and he regrets it to this day because it turned out being one of the greatest games ever.
3: For United support, we got by Beckham. Here's Sheringham. Beckham, what a goal! Well, it was going to take something to make a breakthrough here, and David Beckham has provided it. Fantastic
0: goal for Manchester United. Andy, for our listeners that perhaps aren't particularly au okay fait with, with FA Cup replays and the fact you could play an FA Cup game at Villa Park. Could you explain a little bit of that?
2: Yeah, before the new Wembley was built, uh, replays would be played at stadiums which were usually equidistant between the two clubs. That wasn't always possible, but certain grounds were used frequently for FA Cup replays including Old Trafford Main Road Hillsborough obviously most famous in in 1989 that's where the disaster was the game between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest that was an FA Cup semi-final and the the replay for that was at Old Trafford but Villa Park was often a venue for Manchester United semi-finals because Birmingham and Manchester it was quite close maybe United would play against teams from from London Chelsea Arsenal etc and Villa Park's really popular with United fans, it's a traditional old English football ground with four very separate stands, it's quite easy to get to, it's just off the M6 motorway, uh, Birmingham's a decent city, and United fans had great memories there, the 83 semi-final, I'd been there when um, Norman Whiteside had scored a, a great goal, and Arsenal 99, everybody thought great. Villa Park, it was much more preferable than, than going to Wembley. It's more, it's a more intimate venue. The atmosphere is good. United fans would go behind the goal, um, at, 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 at a little bit of the whole end, and also along the Whitton Lane stand as well. It, it's a ground which Man United fans really love, and people travel to those replays thinking, great, we're we'll going to Villa Park. It's a lot cheaper than going to Wembley as well.
0: Let's really look at this uh, team sheet for this replay because there are some big changes, uh, which I think basically is a knock-on effect. The, the fact it was played three days after the, the original tie. So it's some unusual suspects. Peter Schmeichel, Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Ron- Ronnie Johnson, Yapstam, David Beckham, Nicky Butt, Roy Keane, Jesper Blonquist over Ryan Giggs in the starting lineup, and in the front two of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Teddy Sheringham. Um, Laurie, is this rotation or was Ferguson trying something new?
1: I think it was rotation, wasn't it? I mean, um, we've spoken previously about Ferguson perhaps being ahead of his time in managing squads and realising that to complete a season with all the games that were growing, and particularly in the treble season, you know, when they had um, so many matches, um, you'd need to... Um, take players in and out and, and rest them and um, give them targets to look forward to in weeks to come so that they could prepare right mentally and physically so yeah obviously taking out uh, I don't think Andy Cole was even in the squad was he um, York on the bench and, and Gigs on the bench so bit of a defensive midfield I suppose but Arsenal's wasn't exactly uh, anything different with, you know the two sort of solid midfielders and um, you kind of do sort of Think in this day and age, would they have such a, a you know a game of, of magnitude three days after the the original one? It just wouldn't happen, would it? They'd, they'd want a, a sold out. Well, it'd be a Wembley, wouldn't it? You know, in this case, and Nefe certainly would want the the full um, full whack for that. So um, yeah, it was it's a throwback era, isn't it? But um, I, I think certainly Ferguson saw that he, he, you know to balance everything, he needed to, to take players out. But it's it's really interesting when you do look back on what players thought at the time and. And how crucial that game was to going on to do what United did that season, not only in the FA Cup, obviously, going on and, and winning it, but in the league where Arsenal were the main rivals and then obviously in, in the Champions League where, you know, that that game against Arsenal, United looked like they were down and out with the 10 men, with uh, Bergkamp's uh, penalty. Um, it looked like it was going to be Arsenal's day. United came through, so I wonder if that sort of played in their minds a little bit in the new camp in, that, in, you know, in the final uh, against Bayern, you know, later on.
0: Andy, this was the 53rd game of Manchester United season, uh, and probably the most nerve-wracking. How were you feeling when you were watching this? We were caught up in it because it
2: was a week after United had played Juventus. It was what Ferguson called "squeaky bum time," but you arrive at the ground and you see that Cole, York, Giggs, and Irwin are not playing, and you think, "What on earth's going on?" And I know that the United directors were, were were quite critical of Ferguson pre-match. He he felt that, and. He'd love to prove them wrong as well and I think some of the United directors had stopped second-guessing his line-ups but they were some of Manchester United's best players and, and Arsenal were brilliant. I, I wouldn't say I feel sorry for Arsenal because they didn't win the league or the FA Cup that year but they were brilliant. For Goal for Arsenal. Never write them off. I don't think if Arsenal... Would have been If Arsenal weren't as good, I'm not sure United would have pushed themselves as hard as they did to, to, to win the treble. And the first game was superb, and the second game was was, was incredible as well. And you know, you're losing Roy Keane. He's probably the best midfielder. It was all about him and Patrick Vieira. Which one of those two would you call the best midfielders of, of that time? And it's a great atmosphere. I think night games tend to have a better atmosphere, and I think United fans did sell out the section. Arsenal fans didn't quite uh, sell out. That's why there was empty seats. But United played at Villa Park in ninety-five for another uh, semi-final replay against Crystal Palace. The crowd was horrendous. The stadium was half full. So it shows uh, that you know, people can't always get to games at short notice. Uh, not that they have to now, because obviously there's no no FA Cup replays. Even games as big as that. Uh, weren't
0: selling out. Uh, let's talk about the penalty. In stoppage
3: time, down goes Parler. David Ellery gives Arsenal the penalty. Would you believe it? Well, I thought it was a penalty. two international breaks here and a decisive moment in an FA Cup semi final replay Bergkamp and Schmeichel.
0: It's the final minute of the game. Phil Neville was brought down uh Ray Parler in the penalty area. Burkham stood over it. What were your thoughts, Laurie, as uh as Burkham stood over this penalty?
1: I'm trying to think back um as so I was twelve at the time, to to be uh, completely honest. I was doing the maths just then in my head. Um and I'm trying to think we w- I think we were I don't know where you were, Andy, but we were um in that um, that that sort of low stand that's opposite the press box um, at Villa Park. So in that first tier, so we, we were actually pretty much level with where Bergkamp was taking the penalty. So I guess you just think it's all over, don't you? Know um, penalty and, and I don't think Schmeichel had a great record of saving them either. Um, for all the kind of mystique about him and, and the you know the huge presence that he was in goal. Um, yes, I thought it was I thought it was done, but you know um, he obviously sort of read the way the penalty was going to go it was a decent height great save and and there's that classic sort of get up field you know the re- response from him um you know as goalkeepers always do whenever they make a penalty save they never sort of bask in it did they they have to sort of make sure that everyone you know people are, are aware of their roles and, and you know it's it's kind of a bit of, of a faux sort of attitude I reckon but um but yeah then we were you where were you sort of stood or or, or sat andy we we
2: presume you weren't sat down I was opposite the press box on the lower tier, and there was this kid yeah. in front of me. He must have only been twelve years old, jumping was up me? and down. What, <laughs> what <are you> <laughs> I think we were we're in the same section. We were in the same part of the same section. Oh man! Um, and uh, yeah, when when they got that penalty, you're just thinking, oh no! And part you're thinking, well, at least United are still in in the European Cup. All we have got to go to Turin, and they really look like. Underdogs against Juventus, who'd been brilliant at Old Trafford. And the league was very much in the balance as well. So there was a danger at that point, the whole season just imploding and coming apart because you fancy teams team to score penalties. And it was a real knife-edge moment and, a, and a, a real turning point as well.
0: And we know what happened next. But I can't put it to Schmeichel's left. It was saved. The game goes to extra time. Dwight York comes on for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And ten men, Manchester United... Hold Arsenal to 1 0 at half time and then 109th minute.
3: A rather weary one from Vieira. Giggs gets past Vieira, past Dixon, who uh, comes back at him. It's a wonderful run from Giggs! Sensei!
0: One of the greatest goals in my United history, would you say? What do you think, Laurie? Yeah,
1: no, it's my number one. Um, so I'm obviously doing a series on the top three goals um, that have been scored in my sort of lifetime, um, and this is number one for me purely because of the significance of it, um, you know, the, the 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 status of the match at the time, and then also United season. It's the greatest season in United history, and this is the goal that you know certainly won them you know, the FA Cup in that instance, and then probably give him the, the platform to, to go and win the league and the European Cup as well. So huge significance. And then obviously the goal itself, he just kept kept running. Um, it was interesting. I was, I was re, uh, reminding myself of um, the sort of era and reading Ferguson's autobiography. And he, he says that in the week pri- prior to this match, he actually pulled gigs into his office and said to him, I want you to do more of what you're good at, um, which is, you know, dribbling and, and being direct, using your pace, striking fear into defenders with your direct running and your speed um, because he tried to sort of become more of a complete footballer um, under Ferguson's instructions to increase his passing range and his vision on the pitch. And I guess in hindsight, that's what Giggs ultimately went down into, you know, in, in, in his later years, into his 30s, late 30s, he became a really great central midfielder, um, obviously Champions League final in, in that position. So um, he did have it in him, so you could see the, 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 the theory there, but this was a, a sort of a, a reminder of Giggs' Um, as that as that thirteen fourteen year old that Ferguson had seen first, um, you know when he was gliding across the pitch, I think he says, um, and you know leaves, you know Vieira Dixon Keown and then Adams with that frantic sort of diving and tackle and, and and the finish as well. You sort of think, having got to that point, what's he going to do? And it's just a an almighty. Sort of a thrash of a ball into the roof of the net against David Seaman, who you know obviously isn't a bad goalkeeper himself. Um, and then the shirt comes off and he's, he's coming down the side of the pitch where Andy and I were. Um, I don't know, were you, were you, did you jump onto the pitch? Is that, was that you that jumps on and hugs him, Andy, at
2: all? <laughs> no, I, I was a sensible um, journalist who had to be very careful. <laughs> no, even though I wasn't in the press box, I was with my mates, but no, I know some of the lads who were. Who were- who have been on the pitch at Villa Park because <laughs> there's been more yeah. than one occasion there. But no, I stayed in my seat. I, I was just absolutely buzzing because it's probably the greatest goal in United history. And a lot of people would say it's the greatest ever game as well. I think that yeah. was coming two weeks later in in Italy, but it was incredible. I'd been a kid who played against Ryan in the Salford League and mm. he was that good that I didn't get past half-time whenever I played against him. And my, my manager or my dad had just say, I'm, I'm sorry, son and um, I just couldn't get near him. I played right back, he was on the left. Right, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And and years later, um, he'd wind me up about it, 'Cause he'd say you not quite got over it, have you?
1: Lewis Sahar gave us a really interesting interview actually, um and he he, he mentioned in it I was doing my perfect player and sort of asking him best dribbler and he goes Giggsy obviously and he, he said that he would use those one on one situations as a personal battle every single time and he he never Lewis never saw anyone with as much drive as Ryan Giggs to, to win those individual battles on the pitch and obviously you've got them in, in various different positions. So I feel you know you you were quite unfortunate to have somebody up against you that had the skill but also the determination to make you look foolish each time.
2: Yeah, I did. But as I always point out to him, who won the game, Ryan? We beat his <laughs> season after season and, and we did. So he was... There were three players in our junior league. There was him, Simon Davis, who also went on to play for Manchester United and is now at Manchester City. And a lad called AD Mike who, who played professionally for Manchester City as well. So there was some really, really good players in that league, playing in Salford, where Ryan was from. And he, He's from a... He's a tough lad, Ryan. And if you're from Salford and all your mates are Salford, lads, and it's a tough environment to grow up in. Um, but even at that level, I mean, he hadn't become Giggs yet. He was still Ryan Wilson. We all knew that he was a lad who, who'd been linked with United and he was he was the best player in the league. We didn't know whether it was him, Simon Davis, or A.D. Mike and all of them played top flight football. But yeah, it, it, you know, often there's players who you think, this guy's going to the top. You never expect them to, but, but he did and played 963 times for United's first team and well over a 1,000 times for various Manchester United
0: teams. Athletic readers, you can read a fantastic piece from Michael Cox about that goal and about that game, including why Patrick Vieira just seemed to have passed the Ryan Giggs now on site.
1: That that reminds me, Andy, of, of uh this the celebration. This is the sort of main story that sticks out from that um semi final uh, match where so me and my dad had gone I, I think my cousin was there, but going into the game, um we'd driven over and, and parked up um just down the road from, from Villa Park. And obviously the area around um Villa Park, you know. It is, isn't the most glamorous so we, we park up and, and these couple of lads come over and say oh we'll mind your car for you um, and it's one of those sort of offers that if it isn't taken you kind of think well if, are the windows going to get smashed in you know if, when we come back you know uh, we, we'll mind your car and also we won't brick it but um, anyway you know we give them a five and, and we're perfectly happy with that um, you know you, you sort of expect to pay for parking don't you um, but anyway came back and these two lads so we've, so we've gone through you know the extra time all the jubilation my dad didn't let me on the pitch in celebration, I must add. That was probably one of my only regrets that I didn't sort of have a little cheeky, you know, because it was a, a mass of, of people. Actually, it wasn't a, a fan of whistle, but um, and we walked back, you know, sort of dancing down the street and, and these two guys, in, in fairness to them, young lads were still there, actually minding the car. <laughs> so my dad in his sort Brilliant. of happy haze um, whips out, I think, another 10. He might have even been a 20. I'm not sure, you know, the kind of currency exchange rate back in the days, but he was certainly happy and gave him an extra, you know, doubled the money at least. So. So, um, yeah, he was happy enough.
2: No wonder Birmingham's missing FA Cup semi-finals if your dad's dropping (laughs) 20 quid tips for everybody. Propping up
1: the economy, Uh, isn't he?
2: (laughs) Remember the the 90th uh, FA semi-final uh, against Oldham at Main Road and we drove to Old Trafford, my dad had an old Ford Fiesta and there was no one asking to mind your car, but car radio theft was a big problem at the time. So... We decided, or I decided, I was 16, that we'd cover the car radio with a tea towel that, for some reason, my dad had in his car. And when we got back to the car in Moss Side, it, the windows had been put through, the radio had been stolen, but oh. they left the tea towel. I think I got the blame
0: <laughs> for that. <laughs> through the magic of podcasting, I'm gonna cue up a lovely little uh, bit of audio from Sir Alex Ferguson about that wonderful FA Cup game.
3: Incredible, the drama, uh, the way it was done, I with, with 10 men, Arsenal missed a penalty uh his goal i mean i arrested five players and then Giggs was one of them and eventually i brought him on as a sub patrick vera tried a crosshole pass they got cut out by gigs who so was a really, in a really deep position more deep than in norm and um he said oh i kept saying pass it no pass it no <laughs> and he scored the most fantastic goal
0: ever in the FA Cup that was Alex Ferguson there and next week we will do a deep dive into Andy's visit to tour in. Harry's sponsors Talk of the Levels podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Harry knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. There's a weighted ergonomic handle five precision-engineered blades, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. So if you're in the middle of lockdown and your beard isn't quite the way you want it, I'd recommend getting a bit of Harry's. And the great news is, as a listener of Talk of the Devils podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and you can get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash talk of the devils right now. That's Harrys. dot com slash talk of the devils. Elsewhere, currently on the athletic, Daniel Taylor has written a fantastic piece that uh, speaks to some of the players that didn't quite make it in the Manchester United academy. Uh, one of whom is a relative of yours, Andy. Yeah, Paul. Paul's my second
2: cousin. Paul was um, a good footballer and he was at United for a long time. And Paul's best friends are lad to who's with it united uh, michael appleton uh, richard flash ash westwood and they had very contrasting careers paul was a really good footballer who struggled with injuries and he, he as as he's in danny's piece he had a real rough time where he saw most of his mates become top level professionals and and he didn't and I, I spoke to him did a piece with him a few years ago where i talked about there was this moment where his daughter opened an envelope for him and it was it was a demand for basically debts built up through gambling and that was like a watershed moment in his life he just said he'd been living a lie and there's lots of depth in Danny's piece about footballers when when they stop playing and get released by clubs a lot of them really really suffer and that comes across in the piece but what Paul does now is he set up a company called Revive where he tries to help lads who've been released from big football clubs and he has people coming up to him and they're in a complete mess. They need help, uh, it's difficult for him. He tries to help them to keep fit. Uh, he tries mentally to to, to to help them. He tries to mentor them and he's got experience because he's been in a football background himself. My whole family's uh, is a family of footballers and Paul has, has worked with footballers all of his life and yet he, he had a really, really rough time and is it the cold face of it and it, the, the mental impacts of being a young player where you're basically coming through and you're told from the age of nine or ten you're the best player in the school and then you're the best player in the team then you're the best player in the borough then you get snapped up by man united for example and you're there you're doing well everyone loves you, life's great then you get a first year scholar uh, contract then you get a professional contract everything's going great injury bang you're released it's really, really difficult to take. And it's, it's a problem which is now even more pronounced with social media, where you're basically being told, you're great, you're great, you're great. And suddenly when you do start playing games, you're getting trolls just absolutely hammering you for various reasons, lots of them are anonymous. So Paul's picking up the pieces there and I, I'm, I've got a lot of admiration for what he's doing, but it is a massive problem. This isn't a problem for one person. Uh, the, the, the footballers ended up on the scrappy because you sort of think, all right, if you don't make it at Man United, you'll make it at another club. So you, uh, Laurie mentioned uh, Phil Bardsley before; he's had a great career, and there's loads of players who've left United or City and they've had great careers, but there is an alarming number who fall out of football completely. And Paul played with my brother semi-professionally, and my brother said he was one of the best players he ever played with. His touch, his vision. But he had horrendous injuries as well, so it shows how much luck you need to become a player. I can remember going to see Paul. He was at Coventry City under Ron Atkinson when Coventry were in the Premier League, and again injuries, and you get sent out on loan to Southport, and it's it's really tragic. And I think these lads need
0: help, and I'm glad that that Paul is helping them. It's great effort from Paul and his company Revive as well, Laurie. Danny's also followed up that piece with a little article with Charlie Scott. There's some really interesting lines in there, especially about how Scott speaks to Marcus Rashford on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really nice. Um, he obviously grew up with Rashford for um, you know a number of years. And I think you can see from what Rashford's doing with his, his food share programme um, is interaction with the the young kids that send him poetry uh on, on you know we, we sort of see it on, on Twitter on, in the BBC he's um he's clearly a, a guy that um you know knows where he's from and remembers his roots so um yeah it was nice to hear that he he speaks to Charlie um you know I think he said that he goes up and sees him sort of once a week maybe even um speaks to him pretty much daily um just asking how he is because as Andy's touched on there you know it's the side of football I suppose we perhaps don't appreciate fully that the fact that these kids are brought up in a, in a kind of alien environment where um, the football is seen as, as everything absolutely, and, and they have to dedicate themselves to the, the the game. And then if if they're not actually good enough, um, or if something happens that is unfortunate, and they don't make it, what is the safety net for them? What you know, how are they sort of eased out of that? Um, it didn't seem like Charlie had loads of support in his exit from from United, um, uh, and it was interesting he, he touched on the the um, Carrington at. Under Jose Mourinho, where he sort of separated the the kids from uh, the first team, and, and that's sort of a theme that has echoed through a number of um, sort of people that I've spoken to, where you know um, I think Jose sort of just decided that that was the way he wanted to run things, but perhaps went against the the general ethos of United that obviously Solskjaer's reintroduced. Um, uh, and yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting piece um, on an area that you know doesn't get that much light often.
0: Off yeah, absolutely, Laurie. You've also been busy. In the last couple, you've you know you had a little small holiday, and now you're back. Uh, you did a mailbag, and you've uh, I'm not going to say the surname because I don't want to get carried away. You've been talking about potential signings for Manchester United as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's a bit difficult to talk about transfers in the current atmosphere. You know, ethically, is it the right thing to be thinking about? Or also, we don't even know what the market will look like, how long it's going to be. But, you know, clearly people are talking behind the scenes. You know, you speak to agents, you sort of figure out what they're thinking, Um, they think it's going to be a buyer's market and United, as Solskjaer said last week, are in a good position to um, you know, if the market, I mean he used the word exploit and and Gary Neville went on Twitter and and sort of regretted that he'd asked that in the question, I think he sort of, that probably is um, it was a little bit of a jarring um, sort of comment but still United are in a good position once the window opens to do business as they see fit, Um, they, they do have the cash reserves, they do have the flexibility in terms of where their income comes from so, um, it's not wholly dependent, obviously, on, on match day revenue, far from it. So, um, they're in a good position. I, I personally looked at the Jaden Sancho situation at Dortmund. Would Dortmund, you know, be more inclined to sell um, to get cash in? Um, you know, it didn't look that way because I looked in their accounts, they make it sort of a couple of million um, per match day, even though they sell out the 80,000 stadium that they have um, every time. So, it's not like they're going to be coming out of this in a, a difficult uh, financial situation. So, um, but that that move does seem like it it could well happen you look at um, Rashford spoke about Sancho you know, I have it on decent authority that Sancho is very interested in moving to United. I would really, I'm, I would imagine that those conversations have taken place to some degree. Although Dortmund have, have set out their stall and say that they won't accept anything less than their asking price, which is sort of said to be you know upwards of 100 million. So that's potentially on the boil. Um, I mentioned in the mailbag as well that United are still very much in for Grealish, um, despite his sort of poor uh, lack of judgment. Um, you know, going out of his house um, during the lockdown. Uh, I suppose we're talking about Smalling potentially um, you know looking like he will move on um, when the window opens although the door hasn't been shut on him coming back to United either um, so that's an interesting one Um, so yeah just lots, lots to consider really I mean clearly you know there's other issues that are bigger and and more important, you know, right now. But um, still, football clubs are working, and United's recruitment team is working um, on looking deeper into players, looking at the numbers. So they're using this time well, even though there's not matches to go and watch. They can still do analysis of players that they might want to sign in future. So there's plenty going on, certainly.
0: It definitely is. One thing that's also popped up is a Paul Pogba interview on uh, the club channel, MUTV andy what are your thoughts about this recent chat uh i have
2: contrasting opinions between what journalism should be i mean if i was interviewing paul i would just go straight in and say do you want to stay at manchester united but i appreciate it's very difficult for the club media to do that because there might be certain areas which are agreed off limits beforehand and you know united's official podcast is getting good coverage at the moment and Paul Pogba was a big name and there's enough interesting bits in there for it to be listened to my feelings on him are he's extremely polite and always has been he's always been very professional Uh, he's divides United fans massively I know loads who cannot stand him and want, want him out of the club because they think he's a negative influence equally there are many who think that he's a world class player which he is and I've said on it before, part of me still wants him to work out at United. I realise there's a slim chance of that happening. But I'm sort of hoping now that he thinks, right, Fernandes is brilliant, the team are getting better, there's a future for me here. But I just can't see how someone who wants to leave a club can help a club. And Paul Pogba has been the main man in the dressing room since Rooney moved on, since Zlatan Ibrahimović moved on. And if other players are looking at him thinking, this is the main guy... And he doesn't want to be a... I can't see how any good can come from that. So it's it's a really complex issue because who knows what the transfer market is going to be. United uh, are not going to want to make a loss on him. He's still a, clearly a brilliant player. And I think Oli publicly has, has defended him. He's not going to talk down the value of what could be the club's most valuable asset. And this season, it's not. Been, it's been a non-season for him, hasn't it? He was the top scorer last year. And his stock is really low among a lot of fans but it was also really low the week that Oli arrived Jose Mourinho paid the price he lost his job and there's just a lot of United fans who've got no time for him and I think at the match there's a lot of people who wouldn't really be bothered if he left the club and that saddens me because when he brought when he came from from Juventus in 2016 I thought We're on the way to a brighter future here with him as the main man. And it hasn't quite worked out like that, sadly.
0: It has not. You're currently in Spain. Is there any talk in the Spanish press about one of Real Madrid or Barcelona being for Pogba? Lots. I mean, it's not
2: like they've got a lot
0: much else to talk (laughs) about. Um, Barca. I'll tell
2: you what happened in 2016. Barca were interested and then they were put off by by the amount of money. Today dropped out. So Paul wanted to join Real Madrid. Paul met Real Madrid and Paul was going to Real Madrid. And Manchester United, to their credit, I won't say they hijacked it, but they came in and they said to Pogba and Pogba's people, if you go to Madrid, you'll be fifth, fourth, fifth main man there. Madrid are the best team in the world. If you come to Man United, you will be the main man. And what United did was they showed him... The number of interactions on social media when he was linked with Manchester United compared to when he was linked with Real Madrid. And United's numbers blew Madrid out of the water. So Paul's brought into that. Clearly he still had an affection for United. He knew people who were still at the club. Ferguson had moved on and their relationship hadn't ended particularly well. And and he made the move and obviously United can pay a few quid as well. So it, it added up for for him but now i think he wants if you, i think if you said to him yes or no would you like to to join real madrid tomorrow he would say yes and madrid like to flex their muscles and say we are real madrid we had the greatest team in the world we can buy any player they want and they feed their information into their favored journalists and They don't always get it right. When Madrid signed Van Nistelrooy Royal Beckham, they felt, look, we can even take Man United's best players. The truth was, Ferguson was happy for them both to go. Now, I don't think anyone would be really happy for, for Pogba to go. But if a player wants to leave a football club, it's very difficult to keep a player at that club. And if there's a danger of him running his contract down and leaving for nothing, then that would really spook Manchester United.
0: That's all for this week. Thank you very much, Andy.
2: Thanks, mate. Good to speak to you
0: and uh, thank you once again Laurie cheers Carl and thank you again listener it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for joining us for another episode of Talk of the Devils podcast that's a Manchester United podcast brought to you by the Athletic we'll be back next week